you are listening to Radio Maria. It's now time for catechesis. Today's catechesis is pre-recorded. It's with Father Adrian Graffy, and it's the first part of his talk, Understanding the Creed. This episode has been produced in collaboration with What Good News. I always feel when you get to the creed during Mass, you're not quite sure what you're doing. And if I feel like that... Perhaps some other people feel the same. But of course, the thing about the creed is it reminds you, well, it reminds me and some of you of a, another sacrament. What sacrament does it remind you of, do you think? Well, it reminds you of baptism. Because baptism is about the person about to be baptized proclaiming their faith. They are asked, do you believe in God? And they say, yes, or I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost? Yes. That is part of the liturgy of baptism that we all celebrate once a year at the Easter Vigil. The renewal of baptismal promises. Yeah? You're looking at me as if... <laughs> but I'm sure things will warm up. Anyway, uh, we, we celebrate that at the Easter Vigil and also all Masses on Easter Sunday. Instead of the creed, there's the renewal of baptismal promises. Each one of us says, I believe this, I believe that, I believe the other. Okay, in answer to the questions from the priest. Then we're all generously sprinkled with holy water, which is a reminder of baptism. So it's a kind of rerun of baptism. Now, and if you think that that, what happens at the Easter Vigil Mass and Easter Sunday Mass, normally in a normal Sunday Mass, because the Creed is only said on a Sunday on what we call solemnities, the really major feasts, that is substituted by the Creed. We have the Creed. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do is go through the Creed. Uh, okay. Now, if you look at that picture, you'll recognize it's the icon of Andrei Rublev, uh, the Trinity. And I would just ask you to remember it and go and Google it when you get home and just have a look and see what you make of it. I can't say anything about it at the moment. So I want to move forward, which I can do very easily. Okay, so what kind of approach? If the creed contains the essence of what we believe, let's propose that. It's going to take an awful long time to go through it and explain it adequately. So we need a way into the creed. And I asked St. Cyril of, of Jerusalem what he thought. St. Cyril lived in the 4th century. And I came up with this. The symbol of faith, that's another name for the creed, was not composed from human opinions, but consists of the collection of important points gathered from the whole of Scripture, so as to provide a complete teaching of the faith. Okay, so that makes sense to you. The question is, how much is from Scripture and how much is from human opinion? Or what we might say, let's rewrite that and say, 
The teaching of the church comes to us from scripture, but also from what the church has derived and developed from scripture. Yeah? What we call the tradition. Okay? You go back to Dei Verbum. Plenty of talks on Dei Verbum on the website, so if you've forgotten about Dei Verbum. It says that there are two, there is one source of revelation, but it takes the forms of scripture and tradition. Okay, so I'm asking, what's in the creed? Can I get it straight out of scripture, out of the Bible, or has it come from somewhere else? Okay, that's just to give you an angle on looking at the creed. Okay? Now, those of you who come here for Mass will have noticed that sometimes we don't use the Nicene Creed, we use the Apostles' Creed. There are in fact two creeds which, are, which we are allowed to use, and they're in the Mass cards and the Mass books, and you know both of them, don't you? Always surprises me how quickly Gideon Park parishioners pick up which one it's going to be. And when it's the short one, they pick it up with alacrity. <laughs> because we get through it more quickly. Which is all part of the problem. You've got too much coming at you, see. Anyway, so the Apostles' Creed, its origins are a little bit uh, obscure. But it's thought to be originated in the 2nd to 3rd century. But the Nicene Creed, which is properly called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, right, is a 4th century production. And it derives from two councils, the first two major councils, ecumenical councils of the church held in the 4th century. The Council of Nicaea, Nicaea is somewhere in present-day Turkey, and the Council of Constantinople. And everybody knows where Constantinople is. So the first of these in 325, and the second in 381. Okay? And the first council, Nicaea, was held under the patronage of the Emperor Constantine. Remember, Constantine was the Roman Emperor who made Christianity uh, respectable in the, in the Empire from... Uh, decades, centuries of, of persecution. Okay, let's, uh, I'm using the wrong gadget. Okay, let's go to what's next. Okay, this is where we need a little bit of music. is the Latin version of the Nicene Creed. The thing is, the Nicene Creed was not composed in Latin. 
it was composed in Greek. Because Greek was... Well, Greek was the international language ever since the time of Alexander the Great in the 3rd century uh, BC. It's the language of the New Testament. It's the original language of Christianity, not Latin, Greek. And of course, the eastern part of the empire retained Greek. And when the church split in the 11th century... Greek, we've got the Greek Orthodox, their, their language is Greek. Meanwhile, Latin was the language of the empire and was, had a certain prominence. If you think of the languages used by Pilate when you put the title on the, on the uh, cross of Jesus, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Is that right? In John's Gospel. So Latin was already around, but it couldn't, it couldn't yet uh, take over from Greek. But it did in the church. Okay? So our problem with the creed is how far back do we go? Are we going to go back just to the Latin? No, we've got to go to the Greek. So it's a bit like with scripture. You, go, you can go to all kinds of translations, but you need to go to the original languages. So there is an issue there, um, and it's an, actually an issue for translation. If you remember, so, or many of you will, remember when we began to have the Mass in English, and the Creed always began, I believe, right? But a few years later, and for decades, we took on the translation, we believe. And that was once again demoted by the, what we call the new missile, which came out in 2010-2011, uh, the one we have at the moment, and we revert to I believe. Now, neither of these translations is wrong. But the Greek says we believe, and that's the original, and the Latin says I believe. What would you like to say when you come into church? You've really got to say both, because you've got to say, I, this individual, me, I believe this. Okay? But it is very, very encouraging that we say, we believe. Once or twice in church I've said, why don't we say we believe today? And we go all through the creed saying we rather than I. You notice that sometimes? Tell your priest, say, can we have a we creed today, please? Okay, not a short one, a we, uh, I, plural of I. So this is, look at it, Pisteomen es hena theon. We believe in one God. Okay, instead of credo, I believe in unum deum, I believe in one God. Right, I could take you through this. Now look, um, the structure of the creed, you will be aware, is Trinitarian. There's the Father bit, the Son bit, and the Spirit bit. Okay, so we'll be working through those. And then there's the Church bit. I right? hope that doesn't sound disrespectful. So there's the Father bit, I believe in one God. Then there's the Son, and that takes two slides. Then there's the Holy Spirit, etc., and at the end, you see the final word? Amen. Amen. Okay. 
So that is the Latin. That's what we can appeal to if we get in a mess. Let's go back to the Greek and see what the Greek says. Um, oh, language is a curse, isn't it? But it's also very beautiful. You know, the Tower of Babel in Genesis, I will confuse their languages, says God, and God certainly did. So we've got all these issues about translation and language and what does this actually mean, and you can never translate a word precisely because each language has slightly different uh, limits to a particular word. Oh, dear. Anyway, but the beauty of language is all the languages of the earth are holy languages, can become holy languages. And I'm going to say this, this controversially now, and Penelope, I think, won't be at all surprised. When we start saying we must translate according to the holy language of Latin and create an English which is not English, then we have said our language can never be holy. And the whole point of converting people is that the language of all the peoples of the earth can be holy. And English, when translated according to the rules of English, right? obviously from an original, that's what we should have for our missiles. So if you know what I'm talking about and you're influential with bishops' conferences of the English-speaking world, please tell them what you think. Well, what about American English? We'll do that later. <laughs> okay, so let's start. What I'm going to do is go through with the Latin and our English translation and try and demonstrate how we have the um, how scripture might support the different statements it's a bit of an artificial approach but I hope it will be useful so I believe okay the idea of believing of course we all want to go straight back to Abraham called Abraham before his name was changed. Abraham put his faith in the Lord, believed in the Lord. Okay? And then the people, after coming out of Egypt, put their faith in the Lord, and in Moses, the Lord's servant. Okay? And what does that mean, that they, they, they recognise that God was supporting them? Yeah? Would that what it might mean? Abraham recognized, he heard a voice and he trusted that voice. The people said, God must be with us because he's brought us out of Egypt. Okay? So is to believe, I believe, one, two, three, four, I believe this doctrine, that doctrine, or the other doctrine, or is it something more existential? more about who do I trust, who do I lean on. Well, both those aspects of, of that word are obviously around in our faith, but the original meaning of to believe is accept, trust, accept and trust God. Do you remember the reading from Jonah on Sunday? When Jonah finally got to preach to the Ninevites, it then said, the people the Ninevite people, believed God. They believed God. So it's a similar thing. In other words, their response was positive and they accepted what um, that God was real, that God could be relied upon. 
I've then given you a couple of texts from the New Testament when Jesus, again this was in the Gospel on Sunday, when Jesus begins his preaching in Galilee, he says, repent and believe the good news. So that's more that existential. Believe what is being preached to you. Okay? And then if you really want to get deep into the New Testament and into the meaning of the word to believe, Romans, the gospel is the power of God saving all those who have faith. So all those who believe. Remember that Paul's basic teaching that salvation comes from faith, in other words, from our belief. And in his case, it's very much our acceptance of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the one sent by the Father. So, look, that's what you can get out of I believe. By the time you've thought through that, we've probably reached the consecration. So, you see, the, the creed, we have to kind of rush through it, but it might mean more than, than we notice, really. Okay, I believe in one God. Who believes in one God? Well, the Jews actually believe in one God. So we've got there some text from the Old Testament. This is the famous prayer known as the Shema. Listen, Israel, from the book of Deuteronomy. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You can't have any other gods. And that reminds you of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me, only one. Uh, 1 Kings 18.39 yeah, write them all down and take time to look them up 1 Kings 18.39 this is when Elijah you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Baal who are making their um, trying to make a sacrifice to their gods and Elijah is mocking them and challenging them and in the end the people say the Lord is God, the Lord is God the name Elijah, put it into Hebrew, Eliyahu, means the Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. Elijah was his basic message. None of these nonsense gods, they're not welcome here. We have one God. So a defender of the oneness of God. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and the last, says God. There is no other God besides me. Now you might say, well, we knew that, and it's always there. Well, it wasn't always there. Because there were a lot of local gods, and at some point, if you look at some parts of the book of Genesis, it might seem that Abraham was quite happy that he's got his God, but down the road, someone else has got their God. Different kinds of gods. Different names to God. So part of the basic revelation of the Old Testament amid what we call polytheism is monotheism, one God. So the first few words of the creed, credo in unum deum, I believe or we believe in one God. We could just say that on Sunday and then wait for half a minute. Think about it. I, I might. <laughs> okay, and then he's called Father, Patrem. Okay, 
Father is a name used of God even in the Old Testament. So you have text there from Deuteronomy. Is he not your Father who gave you being, who made you, who established you? Then Isaiah 64, this is an Advent text. Lord, we, you are our Father. We the clay, you the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And Mal is Malachi. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? So some of these beliefs, we can take them straight out of the Old Testament. But of course they develop with the coming of Jesus. They develop in the New Testament. Matthew, Jesus says, when you pray, say this, Our Father. Okay. Matthew 11.27, no one knows the Son except the Father. So Jesus talking of a relationship to God in terms of Son and Father. Okay? We don't have the Son in the Old Testament. We may have preparation for the Son. Right? Well, the sons of God in the Old Testament are something rather different. But the Son is obviously a New Testament concept, expression to speak in which Jesus speaks of himself and we speak of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. When he goes to Gethsemane, he prays in his agony, Abba, Father. Abba means Father. So, I believe in one God, Father, the Almighty Father. You see, each word has got a whole lot of things to say about it. How are we doing for time? No, not bad. Move on. So, omnipotentem, almighty. Isaiah, thus says the Lord, the creator of heaven, who is God, who formed it. No chaos. Whom the earth made it, who set it firm, created it. No chaos, but a place to be lived in. Job also talks about the power of God. And then in Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, we have this expression of the power of God. You have taken, Lord God, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now there's a question there. I would ask you, who is this Lord God? If he's taken his power and begun to reign. It's not the Father, it's the Son. Okay? But that's preempting some further statements in the creed. Right. Factorum celiacterium, a maker of heaven and earth. That's easy. You know what that is. That's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I've also put there what 2 Maccabees 7, where we have this um, clear statement that God made everything out of nothing. If you look at the third line from the bottom, it's the mother speaking to her child who's being martyred. I implore you, my child, observe heaven and earth, consider all that is in them, and acknowledge that God made them out of what did not exist. How do you create? Yeah. How does God create? Does God need raw material? Because in Genesis chapter 1 it says... In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, the earth was a formless void, and there was darkness over the deep, 
and there was a wind blowing over the waters and then God said let there be light so in Genesis chapter 1 it looks like the raw material is already there which means that whoever wrote or whoever was responsible for Genesis 1 hadn't asked that question Does God, is God creator of everything or was there something around Okay. oh you see You'd need, to, you'd need to stop every word. Why am I making booms by getting too close to the microphone? Am I? Yes, okay. I hope they're not <laughs> ruining it for you. I won't make any more booms. Right, you like booms. So, what was it? Okay. Maker of heaven and earth. Of all that is visible and invisible... So there we're beginning to say, well, what does, what does God create? Does God create only the things we see? Is there an invisible world? That really isn't found in the Old Testament that I can recognize, but this is a letter of, of, of Paul to the Colossians where he talks about the involvement of the Son in creation. That's a big point that we're going to come to. And that, God, that uh, in him were created all things in heaven and earth, everything visible and everything invisible. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Right. We've done the Father. Okay? We've done the Father. Okay? Father, believe in one God. Father, almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And of all things visible and invisible. Could you say more about the Father? Of course. Would you like there to be more in the creed about the Father? Well, would you like there to be other things about the Father? Well, I would. It's the Father of mercy. No? It's nothing about relationship. It's all sort of, you know, this huge, fantastic stuff. But there we are. And you might say, well, can't we have a creed that reflects how our belief in God the Father has developed? Well, maybe you could. But Catholic Church doesn't do things like that. And this creed, this symbol of faith, has been absolutely at the centre for centuries. So this is where we start. This is not where we finish. Then we go on to Jesus. Well... We go on to the Son. We go on to someone else. (laughs) And in one Lord, we say, we believe in one Lord. The first name, or the first word that is used for the Son, is this word, Lord. Dominus. Kyrios in, in, in Greek. And the word kyrios is... Curious. It's a strange word, but it's a word that means all kinds of different things. But it's the word used for God in the Greek translation of the Bible. And of course, to, to get some scripture that supports statements about the Son, they're going to come, obviously, from the New Testament. And we're going to go to Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, he says, No one can say Jesus is Lord... Unless he speaks in the Holy Spirit. 
Let's go down to Philippians 2.11. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does this mean? This means that Jesus is God. That Jesus also is divine. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, and this is the huge question which led Constantine to call this council. We've got to make clear what Christian faith is because there are those who say that Jesus Christ is not God. Okay, we'll come back to that. And in one Lord, Jesus. Jesus. Jesum, because it's the accusative, right? It's not a mistake. The name Jesus is the name he was given. It's become a holy name. Of course it has. But it's the name that Jesus was given at his birth. And we have those two accounts in the New Testament of angels in Matthew speaking to Joseph, in Luke speaking to Mary, saying, you must call his name Jesus. So Matthew 1.21, you will call him Jesus. And then, which might seem to you, what earth does that mean? Because he will save his people from their sins. Because the name Jesus, and obviously that's in Latin, in the New Testament it's in Greek, Jesus. But if you go to the Hebrew origins of that word, it means God saves. So the name Jesus means God saves. It's the same name actually as Joshua, Yeshua. Uh, okay, but that would require a few hours of Hebrew. Okay, if we go to Luke... Mary is told, you will conceive and bear a son and you will call him Jesus, without an explanation of the meaning of the name. But Jesus is his name, like John, like Margaret, like Maria. That's the name he was given on birth. Okay. Whereas Christ, Christum, Jesum Christum, Christ is a title. Christ uh, our English word Christ comes from the Greek, originally from the Greek Christos, which means anointed. The word Krio in Greek means I anoint. We've got it in chrism. So the anointed one, in Hebrew that's Messiah. So what we're saying is I believe in Jesus who is the Messiah. I believe in Jesus Christ. Every time we say Jesus Christ, without knowing it, we're making an affirmation of faith that he is the anointed one of God, the one who was to come and came. Okay, so of course Jesus Christ, Paul sometimes says Christ Jesus. It's all over the New Testament. But look there, Mark, the first, first verse of the first chapter of Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ Son of God. Gives him all those titles. Right? There's a way to, to identify Jesus. He's called Jesus. He is the Messiah. And he is Son of God. Right. Going to come back to that. 
because that is absolutely central to the Nicene Creed. You are the Christ, who says those words in the middle of Mark's Gospel? Peter, you are the Christ. Who do, they, who do you say I am? And he said, you are the Christ. In Matthew, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because Matthew wants to build Peter up, you see. Okay. Or Mark was abbreviating. And then we have, oh yeah, look at Luke, the shepherds. To you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. So we get this full, we get the Messiah. We also get, he is the Lord. He's been given this divine status. Because these are angels. You don't have to say that the shepherds understood. But what's declared by an angel is always the truth. Okay? So, this is Christ the Lord. And then, yeah, we had this a couple of weeks ago, when um, the first disciples are being called in John's Gospel. And they come from John the Baptist and go to Jesus. And one of them is called Andrew. And he's so taken by Jesus. He goes off and he finds his brother, one Simon. And he says, we found the Christ. Okay? Right. So I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only Son of God. Right. So this is what we've been leading to. Jesus referred to with this particular relationship to God the Father. The beginning of Mark's Gospel, and also in the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke, at the baptism, what does God say? Just like angels, what God says is always true. But it's a proclamation. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. What does that mean? Uh, this is the mystery of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. But it's not only God who says that. You get to chapter 5 of Mark. And this possessed man, the crazy man from Gerasa the Gerasene demoniac, the one with the story of the pigs. If you don't know it, you'd love to go and read it before bedtime. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The demoniac, the people who are possessed, it's the spirits within them, according to this mindset, or this way of seeing things, who can proclaim the truth. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And then Matthew 11, we have this rather complex thing about the relationship of the Father and the Son, which sounds like John's Gospel, really, but it's actually in Matthew's Gospel, so it makes us think that maybe there were things like this, complicated things like this, that Jesus did actually say to some of it, some individuals who preserved the memory of them. But what comes through very clearly is, I am Son of God, or his relationship is seen as that of Son to the Father. John 5.26, the Father, who is the source of life, makes the Son the source of life. 
You see, it's statements like that that begin to suggest things like we've got in the later parts of the creed. Okay, filium dei unigenitum. <sighs> Oof. Born of the Father before all ages. Now, the problem for the council, when you call a council, you call it because there's a problem. Right? People say that the Second Vatican Council was called without a problem. And they're the kind of right. Just Pope John Twenty-Third said, we've got, to, we've got to move, we've got to do something, we've got to relate to people better. We mustn't keep condemning them. So that, in fact, was the problem, Second Vatican Council. They wanted to bring a message of mercy and openness to Jews and Muslims and non-believers and etc. etc. And this is the church that we've created. Thank God. Nicaea was facing a question of a certain individual called Arius. A-R-I-U-S. Arius was a North African priest who promoted the idea that the Son of God was brought into being by the Father. He was not eternal with the Father. In other words, whereas God the Father was, exists forever, right? the Son came into being at a certain point. And so he denies the that the Son is of is eternal. Okay, let's look at what John 1 says. And these are things which it's very easy to be a Christian to think of Jesus as human. But that's not the that's not the whole faith. The faith is he is divine and became man, as we'll see. John 1, in the beginning was the word. Now he calls Jesus the word and that actually is very helpful if you think about the Holy Spirit the spirit of God we wouldn't have any trouble saying that the spirit is eternal with God the Father similarly the word it's when we start talking about Jesus as son of God we think well that has to be some time later but Son of God is simply a way of talking about the relationship between Father and Son. And the three in Christian faith, genuine Christian faith, are considered eternal. There was never a time when the Father, Son and Holy Spirit did not exist. They exist before time, before the Big Bang. So if the Big Bang is what starts time, this is what they tell us, isn't it? Yeah? Is that right? You correct me, Margaret, if I'm wrong. The Big Bang is what starts history. And when everything's gone as far as it can go, which might be who knows when. But before that, there was no time. There was no time and there was no space. But there was God. And God was, or is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Arius was undermining faith in Jesus Christ by saying he's just... Uh, human is not divine. Now you may find that, oh, actually, do I believe that? That's why we say 
we believe, because we believe together, and some of these things are very complex, but this is genuinely what, from the beginning and from the New Testament, is affirmed by the Church. And so, in order to confirm this, they spoke of Jesus in these terms. Now, this doesn't. This is, this is what the Council uh, of Nicaea, and actually, I, have to, I may have to correct myself there, yeah. Yeah, the Council of Nicaea created most of this. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So while we call him son of the Father, well that's, that's okay, but what do we mean? His sonship is a particular kind of sonship, it's a divine sonship, and it was there from the beginning. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Um, okay. Uh, right, look at that. John chapter 14. Um, no one can come to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father too. And so the challenging things, above all in the Gospel of, of John, which are inviting us to say, well, Jesus is actually more than a human being. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Okay, that's... But... That is classic Nicene Creed. And then we have this genitum non factum. This is where it gets to the nitty-gritty. He was begotten, eternally begotten of the Father, because he's son of the Father. So they have to say he was begotten. But not in a sort of historical sense. But not made. He was never made. He was never created. And the opening of what, the first letter of John. Something that was from the beginning. Right? The word of life. So God is always. I don't say was because God is eternally is. God is always with the word and the spirit. And the word is known as the Son. In fact, a lot of theologians have said, the Father cannot... God is not isolated. God is a community. God is relationship. God, the Father relates to the Son, and the Spirit is the love between them. So it's these kind of extraordinary reflections that we can't really get our heads around. And that are only a very inadequate way, even though a beautiful way, of trying to understand how God, who must be one, because our scriptures always say God is one, but is nevertheless Father, Son, and Spirit. So what are they? Okay, we're going to later on come to the idea that they are persons. But a lot of the terms we use are quite inadequate. Because we're talking about God, and we haven't got the words for it. This is the absolute heart of the controversy of one being with the Father. Right. So if there's one being with the Father, then he was, if we can use that, he is as the Father is. He was, he is, and he will be. 
and look at those words in John chapter 10 I and the Father are one so at this point I'd like to advertise Pope Benedict's book on introduction to Christianity because he's a master so look up what does this mean of one being with the Father now consubstantialem because this is our back to the translation so we say consubstantial do we say consubstantial with the Father these days we do don't we consubstantial with the Father and when we got this translation 2011 we all said what? people don't know what consubstantial is uh, which is quite right because we had a translation which tried to explain it of one being with the Father the Greek is homoousios, that means of the same being. And we've gone for the Latin, which actually is more confusing and more complex, because it talks about substance, and substance for us, God isn't substance. So to say the Son is substance with the Father, well, what they meant was of one being with the Father, you see? So uh, they messed us up big time with this translation or at least they they wanted to respect the Latin tradition the Latin stage of all of this and they had a disregard for the receiver language particularly for English they don't like English you know it's, it's English that there is a, a, a because English is so powerful and English is used by a lot of the smaller languages to translate the liturgy so they're not going back to the Latin they all translate from the English so the English has got to be as right as it possibly can be so let's say consubstantial which is the translation has to communicate to people that's the main thing about it but it does but not as well as it should do. And that's why, if there's a delay in it, so Pope Francis, you probably know, has said, we must go back to the principles of translation which respect the language into which you translate. And our bishops have said, yes, well, we'll do that in the future. We'll do it in the future. Anyway. Sorry. So, perquem omnia facta sunt, and through him all things were made. So he's one with the Father, and then we get this extraordinary statement that the creation was made through the Word, through the Son. Okay? Do, don't be upset by this, but be surprised, because it's not actually a major thing in our belief, is it? In fact, when you come to the end of the end of the Eucharistic prayer and it says uh, through, through, through whom everything, you, through whom you bestow on the world everything that is good okay, so I'm saying to God through, through Christ you bestow on the world everything that is good, that's a paraphrase of something at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, and somebody said to me that translation is really bad because it says that, it seems to imply that the creation was through Christ and this was a, a very Catholic lady in the employ of the Bishop of Brentwood. And I thought, 
yeah, I can understand why you're saying that, but you, you've missed the point. That it is in Paul, it's in, it's, it's in a lot of the New Testament. That because Jesus is Lord and, and proclaimed as Son of God, therefore he was involved in creation. Now we can't understand that because we don't know how creation works, but it's really about Father, Word and Spirit, or Father, Son and Spirit, are there, are always there. When history starts, when the Big Bang starts history and space and time, they're already there. Okay? Program Omnia Factor Sun. Yes, look at John 1 3. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Through him, everything was created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Colossians, that's Paul. This seems to be a Christian hymn which Paul used. So pretty early on in the first century, they are proclaiming this about Christ, that he's involved in creation. Through him, he made the ages. In other words, through Christ, God made the ages, which is made the world. You don't have to understand all this. This is why we say it together. Whereas you say, I believe, and I understand it all. <laughs> so, then we come to the Christ's work for us. Qui propter nos homines et propter nostram salutem. Who, on behalf of us, homines, again, bad translation. Homines in Latin means human beings, and we've translated it men. So you women, I mean, for a long time I didn't say the men, but then I realised all the women were saying men, so they didn't care, so <laughs> say it anyway. For us men, for us human beings, and for our salvation. Right? So this idea of salvation and of saviour is another title given to Jesus. Um, it was a title taken from the Roman emperor. He was the, known as the saviour. Oh, no. He's not the saviour. Jesus is the saviour. Okay. Descendit de celis. He came down from heaven. Again, this we've got to get into this mindset that heaven's up there and the earth's down here. And God lives up there. Because that is what people thought. Until cosmology, astronomy and all the rest of it worked out that the nature of reality is not like that. So when we talk about coming down from heaven, yeah, you've got it with Galatians. God, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem the, 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 those under the law, that we might be children of God. And then John 1, uh, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the Father has made God known. So this coming down is, you understand that, if heaven, if the earth is the vault above the earth, if that's heaven, that's where God is, if he's with God from the beginning, he has to come down. That's why we get this language of coming down. But this is the key thing. Because we are now recognising, however unclearly, that this Son of God, this Word, is eternal to then say 
He became incarnate. He became Emmanuel. He took on human flesh. Sarkothenta. Sarkothenta is the Greek. He becomes flesh. Incarnatus. The carnivore is flesh. He becomes flesh. The Word was made flesh. How absolutely extraordinary that the Son of God becomes as we are. And that's why we always used to genuflect at that point. We are supposed during the Mass to bow at that point and he became man. Uh, okay. De Spirito Santo ex Maria Virgine. Uh, right, okay. I'm, yes, I'm wondering how far I've got. If, has anyone got the text of the Creed? And can you sort of measure where about halfway is? We are kind of halfway. Yeah. Sorry? I'm at three-fifths already. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, no, sorry. I forgot to turn the page over. About halfway. About halfway. Okay. So, he became incarnate. De Spiritus Santo ex Maria Virgine. So, this is the, the, the virginal conception of Jesus. So, he didn't have a human father. So, this comes out of the New Testament. Matthew and Luke. Joseph being told... The way she has become pregnant is this. It's God's power. And um, Mary said, well, yes, but I haven't got a husband and I'm not, you know, well, I'm only betrothed. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, says Gabriel. So that's why this Holy Spirit is involved in the enfleshment, the becoming flesh of the Son as is Mary. Now if you look at those, look at the Latin, it says, De Spiritu Santo, ex Maria Virgine. You know, what prepositions do you use? We said, by the Holy Spirit, of the Virgin Mary. I think the original, the Greek says, ek, so ex, they use from for both, because what, how do you put that into words? It was simply saying that Holy Spirit is involved in this conception in the womb of Mary. <coughs> it remains virgin. You see, all huge problems of our Christian faith are huge issues, things that we've always believed. And they're all wrapped up here, some of them. They're not all, but a lot of them are. Okay. Et homo factus est. That's where we don't know what to say. So he was made man. He became human. I said that homo doesn't mean, isn't necessarily, it, it's about being a human being. Okay. And then we get, he's crucified, under Pontius Pilate, he suffers, he was buried, he rose again, ascends. And, uh, so what I'm going to do is since that is the moment of silence because we just can't get our heads around it and we're halfway through I'm going to stop there and then next week we will continue what it says about the sun which we know but there will be a few things to clear up and then we're going to ask well, the Holy Spirit 
the church, and then what are we left with? 